Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me, as always. If you want to call in, 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Some very interesting news stories we are about to get into today, as well as uh, we've got an interview coming up later on with a former Navy SEAL about, well, discipline. SEALs certainly know about that, and a lot of other stuff, too. Uh, we will have some fun on today's show. We will get into serious topics on today's show. We will cover a whole lot of territory, as is our tendency. Uh, Trump's tax plan is out today. Get into some of the details of that. I, I'll tell you what I think about it. I don't know. How how much analysis and storytelling can one really do of a tax plan that's going to change? Um, Speaker Ryan, very excited today. Paul Ryan, very excited about the tax plan. We'll talk a bit about that. I also have some follow-up to the terror attack in New York City earlier this week, including the analysis that uh, analysis that proves what I've been saying to you all along, which is that the left when it comes to Islamic radicalism and the jihad, uh, is either cowardly, uh, stupid, or both. Or both. I think oftentimes both. But that will wait for just a bit before we get into that. First, oh my, this is going to be fun. We're going to have some fun here. So, Hillary Clinton. Hello! No, but really. What happened was, she has been a... Topic of conversation in political talk for a long time, for for quite a while. Not just on this show, but on many shows, as you know. I'm amazing. Uh, But she is, I think, now finally going to be retired as a power player of the Democratic Party. I'm not sure. But it's going to be a little bit harder for the Clintons than it was even uh, a couple of days ago to continue to be the political dynasty of the left in this country. Right? The Democrats' closest thing to royalty. I mean, you know, I like to wear the robe and have a crown on my head, so, you know, why not? But Hillary uh, was... Twice over, and, it, and it's rather remarkable when you put it in that context. Hillary was two times the assumed Democrat Party nominee. And the assumed next president of the United States. Now, she was the nominee the second time around, but she lost the first go-round, as you know, to Barack Obama. But I remember over the course of the Democrats' most recent presidential campaign, I I remember what it was like among 
leftists among Democrats and liberals and progressives and Democrat socialists and nihilists and anarchists and Marxists, I remember that there was some dissension among the ranks, so to speak. There were some problems. You see, because there was this guy who wanted free health care and free schools, and he was the ideological and spiritual uh, mobilizer on the left. His name was Bernie Sanders. Sandinistas, baby! He, he was, you know, a likable enough fellow in in certain doses, I think it's fair to say. I think that he thinks he believes at least a good portion of what he says, which makes him, in my book, more palatable than, say, Hillary Clinton, who's just like, I believe what you pay me to say. It's just not someone that is uh, in any way ethical or just has no character. Character for sale, right? Character for the highest bidder or character for whoever's going to pave the way for her to have power. Um, but now we found something out. And, and I know that this is uh, from a year ago and maybe a little more, but we have some uh, revelations today, courtesy of Donna Brazil, who was a former uh, CNN colleague of mine, I should note, and still to this day, the first person that in a political debate I have ever had who interrupted me specifically for the purpose of telling me not to interrupt her, which I'll let that sit with you for a second. That happened. That actually did happen. And and I had to sort of just deal with it because she was royalty at CNN. I mean, she was at the absolute uh, top of the list of pundits that CNN. She's right there with. Uh, oh, gosh, what's the guy's? Uh, the, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now. He's the Clinton, you know, the guy that they put out there for Clinton. All the time. And then, of course, I'm forgetting who he is. Not a particularly memorable guy, but there's a whole bunch of them, right? But she, she was uh, among the most elevated figures at CNN. She's written a book. It's coming out called Hacks. And I realize now I'm giving a, I'm giving a, a shout out for a book written by a Democrat who was a major Hillary partisan. I should note, I've, I've never met uh, Ms. Brazil. I've actually heard from people that she's nice. So there's that. That's always a good thing. Always, always happy to hear that she's nice. I, I'm, I'm fine with liberals being nice. I, I wish all liberals would be nice, and I'd, I would say it, but a lot of them are terrible. So here's what we found out, though. And this is, for one, for a lot of us who had to sit through all this during the election and, and hear all the lies and all the nonsense, you know, for, for a lot of us, it's just nice to know that we were right all along. But then there's also the the broader implications of, oh, you mean once again the media was was really complicit in making sure that, I mean, could they have figured this out? Did they try to figure this out? And would they have told this if they had, right? Those are all the questions that we'll get into in a second. As in, were they involved in a huge pro-Hillary cover-up and or a huge turning a blind eye to what was very obvious to all of us? The allegation among Democrats, and I knew some Sanders people. I actually really like some of the Sanders people. I'll tell you that. Some of the, some of the pro-Sanders people were, yeah, I mean, I don't like that they wanted to, well, they, they thought that everything is free, and they don't have a, you know, they don't have any conception of 
well, if I take money out of column A and put it into column B, I don't have the money in column A anymore. It's just, you know, money is whatever it is. It's going to come from the rich people. You know, I mean, there's never any, the math never works, right? But it, it sounds nice. Free school for everybody. Well, who's going to pay for it? Somebody else. Okay. Right? Free stuff sounds good. It's compelling. Uh, it's compelling to the masses. I want to talk about populism. I mean, talking about how you're going to give everybody free health care and free schooling, that seems like pretty pretty obvious populism to me. Anyway, I like some of the Bernie people. But they were upset. They were unhappy with what was going on in that Democrat race. And we just found out today, this is the breaking news today from this book by Donna Brazil, very highly placed, formerly DNC chairperson, right? We are chairwoman. Do we say chairwoman anymore? Chairperson, whichever the correct terminology is, chair of the DNC. As I like to point out, that's even weirder, right, to go with a chair because a chair is an inanimate object. It's a chair person of some kind. Uh, I think we should get our terminology straight and all agree that we should use it, one, you know, use the term one way or another. Anyway, but she would know. She was very highly placed Democrat. And what she says is the following. And I was hearing all these rumblings about how the fix was in. Remember that? That was the big narrative. The fix is in for Hillary Clinton. And these Democrats would go on TV and they would just say any of these these pundits and all these pro Hillary people who were all trying to audition. Right. These uh, different analysts and writers and journalists, they're auditioning for a role in the Hillary administration. So, I mean, they'll say anything. Because their careers are completely intertwined with Hillary's future. Um, and so here's, here's, what is, here's what has been said about this. Donna Brazil claims that she saw an agreement with Hillary and the DNC right after Hillary announced, well, four months after she announced that she was running for president, which we all knew she was going to do. Maybe president! And... She only was willing to help the DNC, which was millions and millions of dollars in the red in debt. She was only willing to help the DNC if the Hillary Clinton campaign had control over where the money was spent. Now, that's that's essentially like saying, okay, so there's this apparatus for the Democrat Party. That's raising money and, and then it raises money for state and local races. Right. I mean, this is the, the Democrat Party's political HQ, their political headquarters, the DNC. And they're running in the red. And Hillary says, yeah, I'll help you and I'll, we'll do fundraising and I'll work with you on a, you know, this joint fundraising committee. But I get to control where all the dollars go. This is as much as anybody could have ever dreamed it. The Democrat Party literally saying to Hillary Clinton, you know, here, here are the keys. You drive. You know, you're running the show. It's your kitchen. I'll just eat whatever you cook. And that wasn't a microaggression, okay? I'm just saying, you know. This is them saying that Hillary gets to call the shots for the whole, for, from the top down for the DNC while she's running against a, a primary opponent who actually was getting a lot of traction and was doing well. I was beating her in some places. But the DNC just was, they were all, they were all in on this. They were willing to just sign it over, sign the deed over for the Democrat Party to Hillary Clinton. Um, and here's what, here's the, the specific, this is up on 
on uh, on Fox News. She said joint fundraising committees were created between the DNC and the Clinton and Sanders campaigns during the 2016 cycle. But Clinton was the only candidate who raised money for the party. And then she goes into some greater detail about how uh, it was clear that Hillary used the fact that she was raising money for the DNC to direct where all that money was going. Bernie was getting cut out. This is also why when, when we used to see the stats on the screen of the superdelegates, and they were all, you know, Bernie and Hillary were neck and neck, but there was this huge tranche of superdelegates that were going to go for Bernie. I mean, sorry, going to go for Hillary. And they said, oh, well, you know, he never catch up, never catch up, because look at the superdelegate count. That was really all you had to know, was that all these superdelegates are going for Hillary because the Democrat Party apparatus was in her corner the whole time. And the fix, the fix really was in. I mean, it, this was a it was a rigged game. They talk so much about Trump and Hillary and a rigged election. The Democrats rigged their own primary because this is how they do business. Because this is how they see politics. They would rather be in power, however it is they have to get there, than to adhere to any rules of the road and. Fair play, integrity, honesty, all all that, all that stuff. All that stuff. All right? So now we know. And this is why, in, in retrospect, when I go back and think about some of my experiences over at uh, uh, Clinton headquarters, also known as CNN, uh, I, I got to sit in. I, I think I've told you this once or twice after a Democrat primary. And I was like, you know, I think Bernie did a great job. I mean, I'm really... Uh, yeah, I'm a Republican and all, and I think Bernie's policies are crazy. But I mean, you know, you got to give the guy credit, right? At least he's getting the base fired up. And you could see all these all these Democrats were either seething because they felt like their future was being jeopardized by the truth coming out, or they were a little bit beaten down by the fact that they knew they were just sellouts. They're like, well, you know, I mean, sure, I mean, I guess. I guess Bernie's doing a pretty good job, but, you know, it's, you know, I mean, Hillary's the Hillary's the likelier candidate to win. I mean, Hillary's the one who can win. That was really the whole theory, right, that Hillary could win, but she didn't. Now, I just want to make this one more one more point before we have to go into a quick break here, and then we'll talk more about a little bit more about this, and then we'll discuss the latest on the uh, uh, terror investigation attack here in New York. We've got a lot a lot to get into today, but one more thing. The same DNC that handed itself over to Hillary Clinton, right, that same political apparatus with all those same players, and were so shameless and were willing to hide that from their voters and to keep that all under wraps. Uh, Do we really think that they're above lying about what happened with Russia and collusion, the election? I mean, do we really think that there's any principles at play here at all? they, They were complaining that the second that Hillary lost the election about how Trump must have rigged it somehow without any sense of irony about the fact that they rigged their own primary. According to the interim DNC chair, not some crazy blogger somewhere who doesn't know anything. I'm sure this is true, which brings us to one more point. I know I said as a final point, which is that Hillary's it's got to be all over for her after this for the for the party. Because. You wouldn't see this book come out from a former Clinton confidant saying these kinds of things. Uh, You would not see this 
if they thought that Hillary was the future of the party, which means right now the Democrat Party doesn't know what its future is. But we know it's corrupt. We know it's dirty. He just doesn't have any empathy. And you can disagree with somebody over all kinds of partisan issues. But you want to have a president who can try to put himself into the shoes, the feelings of somebody else. Why, why can't he do that exactly? What, what is she even? Huh? He can't put himself in the other. Uh, I just want to hear this one more time to so make sure that I'm catching this right. What, what Hillary's saying about Trump. Go, go for that one more time, please. He just doesn't have any empathy. And you can disagree with somebody. I mean, that's, okay, that's, what I, that's a pretty terrible thing to say about the commander. First of all, it's baseless, but it's, a, it's just such a, such a nasty thing to say about the commander-in-chief after a terrorist attack where we've had eight people killed and a dozen wounded. That just seems to me to be, uh, I was going to say, it is, it is beneath her for the former secretary of state and former first lady. But as we know, Hillary, is, is there... Is there anything that's really outside the boundaries of of good taste and decency when it comes to uh, how Hillary runs her uh, political life or anything? I mean, I just think that at this point, kind of a desperation for power, attention. She already has so much money based on what? Well, selling influence. Oh, that reminds me. Now that Donna Brazile has broken the silence about the DNC and how it was handed over to Hillary Clinton during their Democrat primary, which means the Democrats had a rigged election. Let's just all call it what it was. It was a rigged election. It was among themselves, but that's pretty dishonest for you know, for all the American people. If I were a Bernie voter, I would be losing my mind right now, right? Oh, the media's going to go, meh. It's only okay, though, now, because Hillary is, you know, she's yesterday. she's yesterday's news in terms of, power circles in the Democrat Party. That's what this really is. This is a big signal to the political marketplace that Hillary is no longer a kingmaker uh, and will no longer be king or queen. Um, But there's one more thing. I wonder which intrepid mainstream journalist is finally going to break the story of, yeah, the Clinton Foundation was like, like, so we all knew that Hillary, Hillary had the DNC in her pocket and the election, the primary was rigged for her we all knew that we didn't know the details but we knew that i'm wondering when someone's going to come forward and say you know yeah the clinton foundation really was a front it was part charity part clinton slush fund and it was an influence peddling operation on a global scale which i should know we all know that and and have known that But maybe now that Hillary is no longer politically necessary for the futures of the Democrat or for the future of the Democratic Party, I guess you might have some journalists decide, hey, you know, I can make a name for myself here by just putting a little meat on the bones of what we all already know, which is that Clinton Foundation was a giant scam, incredibly corrupt. And that's really where I think the investigation, forget about Uranium One, let's just go into the Clinton Foundation. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So we have a terrorist in custody, Saipov, Saifullah Saipov, who wishes that he could 
hang an ISIS flag in the hospital room where he is recovering from the gunshot wound to his abdomen after he had killed uh, eight people and uh, very terribly wounded a number of others. And people lost limbs among the wounded. So horrific wounds uh, for uh, and a dozen people uh, were wounded other than those who lost their lives, who were killed in this incident. And this guy, Saipov, is in every way exactly what you would expect of an ISIS adherent. Uh, He is unrepentant. He is vile. Um, And we see the usual stories about, oh, you know, people who knew him, he was nice, who would know him? I don't know why the media insists on on doing that. Um, It's one thing to ask, you know, family members and, and close friends about, someone's character and behavior after an incident like this. But, you know, they'll say, hey, some guy who used to know him kind of said that he was quiet and nice or whatever it was. And then they'll find someone who says he wasn't nice. And what are we supposed to make of all this? I think it's just journalists filling the pages. But you saw that there's, well, right away there was political back and forth over this. And uh, I wanted to get into how the mayor here in New York has referred to this and what his priorities are in the aftermath of his incident. I've said that we have a nincompoop for a mayor in New York, Bill de Blasio. At one point, I think he ran Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign, was very tight with the Clintons. And as I am fond of telling you all, was formerly named Warren Wilhelm. Um, Warren Wilhelm, hello, guten tag. And now his name is Bill de Blasio. Uh, Quite a change. That's not like a middle name as a first name, which is what I have, or anything like that. It's it's just like uh, quite a, quite a shift. But De Blasio spoke about the and and I know something about this because I used to work in the NYPD as what they call an intelligence research specialist. What that is is a civilian contractor with expertise in counterterrorism who is there to help the NYPD with counterterrorism investigations. It is the analytic cadre within the uh, within the intelligence division of the NYPD. The intelligence division of the NYPD was originally largely about dignitary protection for those who had come to the United Nations and others, because New York gets a lot of very important, very powerful foreign visitors. But after 9-11, they repurposed or repurpose, change the mission, however you want to put it, the NYPD uh, Intelligence Division, to make it about counterterrorism. There's also the counterterrorism division. I mean, it gets complicated, but that's more static security, and they deal with other things, you know, blast radius for buildings and things like that. Uh, Intelligence Division, if you want to know, is the one that has, uh, is running human sources. Intelligence Division is the one that is looking into breaking up cells and, and networks of, of extremists. And so I spent, gosh, I don't know, about 18 months with them right before I came into media. And so that was the last job I had before I started doing what what you're hearing now. And so that's why I wanted to give you that background because now I can tell you a bit about what de Blasio says. And, And he's representative of a lot of Democrat opinions here, which is, you know, always take the position that Law enforcement is overstepping or victimizing the the Muslim community in this country by giving any additional scrutiny of any kind to mosques or anything like that. That's, that's very, very bad. It's a very bad idea, de Blasio says. And 
I'll give you the other perspective as somebody who is doing the work and is very familiar with uh, how this whole how this whole process of mosques they call it mosque surveillance. Just you know, it wasn't about a mosque or it wasn't about mosques. It was always about individuals that were thought to be engaged in because of credible reporting, because of probable cause, uh, terrorist criminal activity. That's that's what it was about. And sometimes they would congregate in a mosque or sometimes. And I know this may be very hard for some of you to believe. The mosque itself was a place where criminal activity was occurring of all kinds, different kinds. Uh, But here's what de Blasio said in the early moments of the uh, debate that he had here with Nicole Malia, Maliatakis or something is her name. She's not going to win because she's a Republican. It doesn't matter, right? She's going to get like 15% of the vote probably. Seems like a nice enough lady from what I've seen. But anyway, here's what de Blasio says about NYPD mosque surveillance. The surveillance program of the past failed because it alienated our police from the very people we needed information from and it violated people's rights. That's just not true. It's just not true. And I'm not, you know, this is a rarity, right? Because usually you'd have somebody who's like, oh, you know, de Blasio is a leftist. He's like a commie and and doesn't know anything about this. And that's all true. But I actually worked these cases. I was very familiar with what was going on in the world of mosque surveillance because I was involved in these programs personally, day in and day out. And it was always done uh, with a lot of legal oversight from the NYPD's legal division, and it was always based upon uh, opening criminal cases. And, you know, there wasn't just sort of blanket surveillance and what are you picking up? So that's, it's just not true. And, you know, you get the NYCLU, which is like the New York version of the ACLU. They were suing, everyone's suing. Here's the problem, though. As I have told you before, and we should keep this in mind after the terror attack in New York City, that involved the... The terror, you know, as soon as this happened, if we were like, what do we think about this guy? Had this happen? Saifullah Saipov fits the fits the bill, right? This is what we would have expected. This, if you, if I said, hey, I'll, I'll give you, you know, money if you can guess right who this evil savage terrorist, uh, you know, give me some of his, how did he radicalize? What does he believe? You know, what what all that? You you would have guessed. You would have gotten pretty close to this guy Saipov. I mean, he might not have said Uzbekistan as his country of origin, but you, you would have come pretty close on some of this stuff. And, and here's what I here's what I would say about de Blasio and the and the whole mosque surveillance thing has failed. And because this, this is a nationwide discussion occurring through the prism of New York City, can law can the FBI focus in on a mosque that they believe is suspicious for the purposes of of terrorism or counterterrorism operations? In your community, wherever you are across the community, I, I'm telling you, you know, if you're in a city, there's definitely a lot of mosques. But wherever you are, there's the mosque not that far away. So could there be surveillance of that mosque? Not all mosques. There's not enough resources. And keep in mind, that's never been that. The plan has never been let's just mic up all the mosques or something. Let's there's it's not possible. But if you're trying to prevent jihadist plots from happening, if you go back and you learn about the Jersey City Mosque and its role in with the Blind Shake and uh, the first attack on the World Trade Towers. And uh, there were mosques that were the center of criminal conspiracies. 
terrorist criminal conspiracies. That has happened here in New York City. But we're supposed to forget about that history and that background. Oh, well, how would you feel if what? If there were police officers wandering around St. Patrick's Cathedral? There are. No one's saying, oh, gosh, our civil rights are being violated, right? They're there to provide safety. But point is that Christian churches here in the city, Jewish temples here in the city, have police officers and security and and plainclothes officers around them all the time. That they're not there investigating, but they're protecting. It's just a function of what's going on at that particular location. What de Blasio and others won't talk about is, well, why is it that when, when, when young Buck was just a lowly, lowly analyst at the uh, NYPD Intelligence Division, why was it that every, and, and which, which had a mandate of countering any extreme, violent extremism in the, in the city of New York? That was the mandate, right? Stopping another 9-11 or any attack like it or stopping any terrorist attack to the best of our ability and working with the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force and all the rest of it. Why is it that all the uh, really important, urgent cases, why is it that all the plots when I was there that were actionable, active plots to kill people based on ideology were all radical Islam? Every single one. We could sit and talk about, the, as I've said, the anarchists and the white supremacists. I mean, they, they throw that in there, too, because you've know, you got to be politically correct. You've got to make it seem like there's a lot of other terrorism we're concerned about, you know, right-wing extremism. All the cases had to do with Islamic fundamentalists who, I should note, spend a lot of time in mosques. I, I could sit here and go through the uh, few dozen, I forget what the exact number is now, but plots that were either enacted or in the planning phase against the city of New York post 9-11. And I wouldn't be able to come up with one that was a member of the of the Tea Party who was disgruntled, which to his to his everlasting shame was what uh, Bloomberg said initially about somebody who was upset about health care when there was the attempt to bomb Times Square in 2010. When I was working at the NYPD at the time. So does the left have any answers for any of this? I mean, what, what are we supposed to do? You know, de Blasio says that it didn't work and it violated civil rights. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but it actually was a pretty good idea. And it wasn't violating anybody's civil rights. And if the Muslim community here in New York City, and I should know that there was a lot of Muslim outreach from the NYPD and they had community relations officers and there were a lot of Muslim officers in the NYPD. And but. If if the concern is that us trying to deal with us being people in New York City and and I know that this is specific to the city, but we just got hit with a terrorist attack and this is a constant threat in this city. If our concern is that by focusing on the threat of Islamic radicalism, we're going to radicalize Muslims, we got a really big problem, everybody. We got problems in a whole bunch of ways. And we need to start being honest about what's really going on here. Um, and I haven't even gotten into how Saipov was in a position to sponsor, as Trump said, dozens of his relatives to come to the country, the whole chain migration thing. I mean, there's more here. So let's get into that. I will talk to you about taxes. I don't, you know, for me, taxes are are important, but there's only so much that it's worth me and you taking our time here on this show to get into the rates and the, I know there'll be growth and the, you know, wages will go up and there's yay, all great stuff. Let's hope it happens. But 
I won't spend too much time on all this. Oh boy, I've got something breaking here that is just going to add a little more fuel to our fire from earlier on about how the election... So I said the word rigged earlier this hour. Um, By the way, we're not done with the discussion about... uh, We're not done with the discussion about the left and how it dealt with the terror attack, but I use the term rigged. And some of you maybe thought, oh, oh, Buck, you're on radio and you're just... Just overstating, you know, just because people on radio are always, you know, rah, 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 on radio, you know, yelling and angry. You know, I'm angry about something. I'm on radio. Uh, No, no. No, no. turns out that I'm not the only person who thinks that the Democrats rigged this thing. I give you Elizabeth Warren. You probably are familiar with her. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who was just asked as we were on air here. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Just as before we came on air here, I'm saying now that I'm, I'm, I'm reading the reporting, but I didn't see it live. Uh, whether or not the system was rigged in Clinton's favor. She was asked this by Jake Tapper on the lead. And her response was yes. Now, there's no bravery here, right? Let's all be very clear about that, because this is this is a big symbol from the Democrat left, that the era of Clinton is over. Over. And no one's going to care anymore. Um, what will uh, what will be brought in to fill the void? Who will be the kingmaker of the Democratic Party going into the next election? Well, for one thing, I think Elizabeth Warren wants a little payback here for feeling like she had to stand... Uh, stand in the background while Hillary got yet another shot. I think Elizabeth Warren kind of wanted to take a shot. And maybe she will now. And that would be fitting. It it would be fitting for the Democrat Party to be represented by a woman whose entire career was based upon uh, using a a sleight of hand, uh, using a part of the racial entitlement state, uh, a racial entitlement, rather, uh, as Scalia referred to it in a Supreme Court decision, uh, in order to get adv- uh, get admission to one of the most elite law schools in the in the country, right? As a professor, forget about just getting in. Hired as a professor at Harvard Law School, based on what? Well, they needed they they wanted a Native American law professor, and she said she was one, so they went with it. Uh, it's pretty astonishing when you think about it. But here we are. And she's really just a slightly younger, less charming version of uh, Bernie Sanders in terms of what she stands for. But now now it's really coming out from from all over the place. When, when you have a Democrat senator who's got to be in the conversation of the top five people saying that the election was rigged, that's that means that Hillary's done. Now, w- will they make the connection that I did between how... The Democrats, on the one hand, claim Trump cheated. And now, on the other hand, we know that they cheated in their own election, which I know that there's this sense of, well, maybe they should be allowed to because it's their. No, no, they're supposed to represent the voters. And there's a there's a a degree of of fraudulence that's almost hard to uh, hard to encapsulate here. It's almost hard to express how dishonest that whole Democrat primary thing was. And we all knew it, but now we have proof. This will be true of other things as well. 
uh, based on, I think, how some of the investigations and some of the uh, efforts to unearth the truth about whether it's Uranium One or the Clinton Foundation or any number of things goes. Um, but I, I thought we were going to leave this story behind. I just I had to I had to bring it back in there for a moment because um, here we are, how many months later, and you'd think that maybe somebody would have said something before this. Think about what a tight ship the Democrats are running at the propaganda level that nobody was like, yeah, letting Hillary raise money for the DNC while. I mean, doesn't that tell you how in the pocket of Hillary the DNC was that? And, you know, isn't it at least feasible? I'm not going to get too crazy here. But maybe somebody at the DNC at some point had had enough about this. I'm assuming that someone somewhere in the DNC hierarchy got the word out to some journalists about this, or at least tried to get the word out about what was going on at the DNC to some journalists. And I'm guessing that they just didn't go anywhere with it. Or, I don't know. But somebody knew something. Donna Brazil, on the one hand, and others, other commentators have, have been putting this out today, on the one hand, she's like, I had no idea that this was going on. But like, let me tell you what was really going on. People knew, everybody. People knew that this was happening with Hillary. People that were going on TV who were powerful and who could have said something. But they wanted the fix to be in, don't you see? Because they were all going to cash in with the Clintons. He's back with you now. Because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. So there's a big uh, to-do today over the tax plan. Yay, taxes. Oh, what's up? Rock and roll with the tax plan. Tax plan. Trying to make the tax plan sound sexy. It's important because it um, is something that affects your money, which is important. And I would like you to keep more of your money. I I will get into it in a few moments, though, because for one, it's not we haven't even we don't even know what the final thing is going to be here. And also. uh it hasn't passed yet, so who knows if the Republicans will even manage to figure that out. But first, I wanted to finish up the, the thread that I got diverted from before here, and that has to do with uh, that has to do with the left's analysis of terrorism and and how it's interesting to see that their ideology intrudes upon basic intelligence. <laughs> their ideology means that they make mistakes and they say things that you're like, how could you really, really? Uh, and and we'll, I'll show you some examples in a moment here. But first, the, the best example, and, and this is, I don't think this is the only version. I saw a version of this on Twitter as well from a journalist, but this is a much more egregious version of it, which is in GQ magazine. I know, I know, not like the New York Times, but in GQ magazine... They published a piece on November 2nd. Why does this is this was the, to the title. Why does Donald Trump? Well, let me give you the original title. Let me give you the change title. Why does Donald Trump want the death penalty for the New York attack, but not for the Las Vegas shooter? And other, I saw others putting this out on social media too. journalists who were this was one of their one of their instances where they were uh, trying to, you know, trying to show that there's a hatred of, well, that that Islamophobia is the overwhelming 
reality in America and that that manifests itself even in how we treat and view terrorism and stuff like that, right? That that was the purpose. That was the reason that people would say this. Now, as I'm speaking, I'm sure a lot of you have been thinking to yourselves, well, the reason, the reason that I would guess that President Trump did not advocate the death penalty for the Las Vegas shooter is the same reason that I, I would not have in any way. Look, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, you can you can call me controversial. You say what you will about my analysis here. But I did not advocate for the uh, after the shooting. I did not advocate for the death penalty for the Las Vegas shooter because he killed himself. So. Right. What are we going to do? That that's pretty that's pretty much case closed in terms of not the investigation, but whether the death penalty applies or not. The guy killed himself. He's already dead. And GQ updated that. But it, it's that's not an error that one would make unless the 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 synapses of the brain were misfiring in some way because of the emotion and the ideology of being a being a leftist. Right. It's It's more important to try and show that Trump is a bad guy and, and Trump is the problem, right? There's a, there's a mass casualty terrorist attack here in New York City, a few miles from where I'm currently sitting. And I have to see on TV different people paid for their opinions to suggest that Trump is the problem, right? You know, it's a, yeah, okay, terrorism is bad. They'll say that, but, you know, but, but Trump did this. That was really bad. Let, let's talk about that for a while. Trump's tweets are are not helpful. That that's another one that you see a lot of. Oh, Trump's tweets are not helpful, and people will keep saying this. Um, oh, you have Chuck Schumer, for example. President Trump, where is your leadership? Again, Mr. President, President Trump, where is your leadership? President Trump. Instead of politicizing and dividing America, which he always seems to do at times of national tragedy, should be bringing us together and focusing on the real solution, anti-terrorism funding, which he proposed to cut in his most recent budget. Isn't that amazing, everybody? There you have Chuck Schumer. Without missing a beat, almost in the same sentence. Talking about how Trump needs to show leadership and leadership and stop politicizing this terror attack. Because we all know that the lack of funding in Congress for counterterrorism is is actually Trump's fault. And that's why that's the problem. You know, stop politicizing the terror attack. Now, let me talk about this political dispute I have with the administration over funding. And how that ties to the terrorist attack. And if that wasn't enough. Here is uh, Schumer two days, two days after the uh, Las Vegas shooting. In the face of tens of thousands of gun deaths every year, too many Republicans in Congress have tried to enact the dream agenda of the NRA and the gun lobby. They've pursued a national concealed carry law. Can you imagine if that law passed this horrible, horrible man could concealed carry under the laws of Nevada and come to Times Square in New York City or Disneyland in Florida. Okay, so this is the guy who's... 
That was a month ago, right? And now, now he's the guy who's saying, let's not politicize a tragedy. I'm pretty sure we could all agree that Chuck Schumer doesn't have the moral authority <laughs> on this issue or any issue to lecture anybody about anything. But uh, that's the politicization issue, which I know we talked about yesterday. I mean, back to the the left being uh, just delusional and and foolish when it comes to the way they talk about uh, terrorism and specifically a terrorist incident like this that involves a young or you know a, a male Muslim aged twenty five to forty five. With a big beard, who is an immigrant to the country, who yelled Allahu Akbar, who you know, they go down all this list of of their. This is a story they don't want to talk about. This does not make them happy to relay the details of it. And and here's a CNN reporter discussing this terrorist incident. Here's what he said: Police know who he is. They have a description of him. I'm not going to share that at the moment. They know who he is. They have. They're not going to share that at the moment. Why? Why? Uh, that would seem to be a public safety issue, wouldn't it? Why would you hold that back? Right? Because if somebody knows something, okay, then then they want they should come forward. What if somebody, uh, you know, I mean, this you see this in New York City, and it happens all the time. It happens with local crime reporting, as I've told you, where I I have watched it with my own eyes and heard it myself. They will say, you know, an, an attempted attempted rape in uh, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, uh, and, and they'll show a sketch of the subject that was of the suspect that was given to the police, and then the description will be male, five foot ten. Okay, I mean, if we're going to try to find the the suspect, I mean, you would think. I mean, some people are listening; they're not looking, and why why is that? Or they'll just describe the suspect as. Less than what the police have on the incident. And this this hurts trust in our media when they think that we can't handle the details of what is true about a specific incident. It would just be a little too difficult for people to hear what was going on. I mean, they do this all the time. They do this all the time. Um, and then you had an MSNBC terrorism analyst whom I've, I've heard before and says – uh, it's just, just not a very good analyst. I mean, I, I you know, this is – not somebody who I've heard uh, on the issue of terrorism say anything insightful. Now, I don't follow his career all that closely, and I don't really care. But here's what he had to say about this most recent attack. What you're seeing is not Islam whatsoever. None of this is condoned, including the you know sacrificing and getting yourself killed at the end of a terrorist attack. None of that is Islamic. It's anti-Islamic. Even... Christians, we've seen Catholics in, in Canada who converted to quote unquote Islam and then carried out acts of terror. I just, what does that have to do with anything? So if they converted, then they're no longer Catholics, right? But what is it with people in the media, analysts or, or journalists, who want, to, who want to explain to all of us what the real Islam is? This is a, look, it's a problem that President Obama had. You know, the future does not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. Said it at a U.N. speech. I remember it, and I remember my jaw kind of hit the ground. Really? Okay. So we all, do I have to show, I have to show respect as a Christian? I have to show respect for the prophet of Islam? Really? Oh, I can't slander him. Well, if, if, if drawing him is slandering him, that's, that's drawing some pretty tight boundaries, isn't it? 
I'm now obligated to that too. That was a, that was our president, my friends. That was what he had to say about that. So I, I, you know, we could do this for all day. I, I just want to give you some examples of. This is why when Trump says things like the, you know, the terrorists should, uh, you know, we should. I, I hope he fries or, you know, we're going to be tough. We're going to. It, it resonates because we're sick of all the the pretense from the left that there's nothing to see here in terms of any pattern. Has nothing to do with Islam. The real fear is uh, the real problem is Islamophobia. NBC News, as as sure as night follows day, right? NBC News published a piece the day after the attack on how the the Muslim community was bracing for a backlash. I've talked about this many times before. The backlash never happens. Why? Because America is a tolerant country full of good and honorable people who don't judge individuals by the actions of people that are part of a group that they are, you know. Not, not even affiliated with, but just roughly have some background in common with. I mean, it's just, this is why, you know, it's not good to have 90% of the media dominated by leftist Democrats. It's not helpful to people, and it's certainly not good to have so much uh, crappy counterterrorism analysis. You know, in, in other areas of of what goes on in the, in the media, you're expected to know something of the subject matter. I've I've said before to you that with guns, there's just an except. As long as you hate guns, there's an exception for you. If if you hate guns and you're a journalist, you don't you can make mistakes. You can sound like a buffoon. Doesn't matter as long as you hold the right position, they'll catch your back. It's kind of true now as well with terrorism. You can just be an you can just be an idiot on the subject of terrorism. Never have actually worked on it. Have any real professional knowledge or any uh, in depth even scholastic knowledge of you know. Uh, academic knowledge of terrorism and they'll put you on tv but as long as you say the key things you know islamophobia and trump tweets you know those are the problems islamophobia and trump tweets they will show you respect maybe you'll talk a little bit about the enemy combatant issue i don't know how much anyone really trump kind of backed off that uh and third hour we have uh, jocko willink joining former navy seal he's going to talk to us about discipline and leadership so that will be a very interesting discussion, as well as the counter, the sexual counter-revolution. I think that's a discussion you will certainly want to hear as well. All right, so I I, I want to switch switch gears here pretty uh, pretty <laughs> pretty rapidly. Um, there is this lawmaker; she is up for re-election soon, and she's out in uh, Dutchess County here in, in uh, which is here in New York State. Oh, no, not Dutchess County. I forget what some other county. Whatever. She's in the Hudson Valley. And she got pulled over by a cop. And now the, the, the audio goes on for nine minutes long. And she's like a local legislator and she's up for reelection. The audio goes on for nine minutes. And I, I've got to tell you, this is incredible. She just gets pulled over for he wasn't even going to give her a speeding ticket. He was going to give her a, a failure to put on her seatbelt. And just let's just let's just enjoy this together, friends. Let's just just sit back, relax, and and let 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 this uh, let these sounds roll over the airwaves. Play it, sir. And the reason why I pulled you over is because when you passed me, you were doing forty three and a thirty. That's thirteen miles per hour over the speed limit on Ulster oh. Avenue. When we were passing the uh, firehouse there on Ulster Avenue. Oh well, God. I mean, I was moving this put together with everyone. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I can't pull everybody over. No, I work for the county. Okay. The county government. Oh, okay. So she's hoping um, to get I'm out because she works for the county. I'm going to meet the consulate right now at the Maritime Museum. Okay. Can I have your license? Yeah, 
to the Ulster County SUNY Ulster graduation. Okay. Oh, she's got to make for graduation. I'm supposed to go home and pick up my son to go to these parties. Okay. Please don't give me a ticket. I'm broke. I'm completely broke. Okay, if you just have and to... if you tell people, I mean, it's going to hurt me. If you if you find the registration card, just hold it out the window and I'll come get it, okay? Give me a ticket. I can't afford it. Okay, just... And I, and, and I was driving at the same pace as everyone. I will defend it. I was... I mean, I... Okay, I, under, I understand that you were driving at the same pace I as mean, everybody, but if it's over the speed limit, it's over I the speed limit. So why would you pull me over instead of someone else? I'm sorry. I'm having a, a panic attack. I... I... <laughs> What the hell is she talking about? Okay, can you can you let me explain? I'm probably friends with all those guys who uh, I can't take this into about my son. Hello? I just would like to explain the ticket to you and then you'll be more I'll be more than happy to answer no, any of your questions. You told me that you pulled me over because even though everyone was going at the same speed, you had to single somebody out. No, I did not. That's those were not my Oh, now That's she's getting all literally on him. Everything has been tape recorded. I said I can't pull everyone over it. I don't feel safe here. Okay, well, every now she's saying she doesn't feel safe. Recorded, okay? I don't feel safe around you. You don't feel safe no, around me. No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you, by the way, that goes on for nine minutes. And that was just a two, I mean, we could go, I mean, it go. you have never, oh, she, she, you know, I, look, at, at first I was like, oh man, maybe she's in rough financial shape or something. You know, I can't afford to take, but then it's, you know, and I have PTSD. And I'm like, wait a second, PTSD. Wait, from what? Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna get. She's she's a member of the Workers Party. She's a far left progressive. I'm gonna guess she's not like a front line. She's never been a frontline combatant or anything. She's like, I have PTSD. I know you can get it from other things too, but suspect at least, right? Suspect. Uh, and, and then you know, and, and you're you're you didn't pull everyone over. You just pulled me over. And you know, I mean, she gets. And then she says, you know, I feel unsafe. And the guy, the cop is incredible. And I can't even give you, you have to watch the whole nine minutes of this thing. This is a county legislator. I mean, she pulls every trick in the book to get out of what he says is just going to be a seatbelt ticket. He's like, I'm just going to, I mean, how much, okay, she says she can't afford it. I mean, even if that were true, which, but she's driving around in a brand new Prius. I think she can afford like a $15. What is it going to be? It's a seatbelt violation. It's like 15 or 20 bucks. He said he wasn't even giving her a ticket. For speeding, and I've just—it's amazing. You have to listen to the whole thing. And she's like, "Oh, I don't feel safe." It's broad daylight. There are motorists everywhere, and the cop is putting on a, a clinic for patience and professionalism. And he's just like, "Look, like, why don't you calm down? Everything's cool. I'm just gonna—you know—I pulled you over. It's not. You know, oh my gosh! Like, what are you doing? I—I I cannot even do it justice. It's nine minutes of, and it gets worse too. I mean, she's you know." Why would you do this to me? You know, she—it's it's basically everything. It's—it's it's, oh, I can't afford it. I'm rushing to—I'm uh, rushing to a school. I'm going to a job interview. I, I got to go see my niece. I mean, now I'm making it up. But I got to go see like my niece is you know in labor, and I'm, I'm missing. I'm li- late for the airport. Uh, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna have your badge. You know, cop. Uh, I'm, you know, all this. It's just like throwing everything. The kitchen sink at this guy. And this is right in advance of the election in this uh, upstate New York county. I, I have a feeling this is not going to do not going to do well for her. She has apologized, just so you know. So it's not like she pretend she didn't actually have some 
uh, there's no explanation for this other than just she started berating the officer and being really, really gross. But uh, there you have it. It is it is an amazing, an amazing uh, back and forth between this uh, member of. Oh, she's the was she in the Green Party or no, the Working Families Party. Got the Working Families Party legislator here up in uh, New York State. With, oh, why did you pull me over, officer? Officer gets a high five, man. Officer did a great job. All right, taxes. We'll do taxes. Stay with me. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. So a lot of good things are happening, but this is the final element, tax cuts and tax reform. And it's an honor to work with my fellow Republicans. I think we're going to actually have some Democrat support. I think it's going to be very, very hard for them not to support it. Uh, There was a certain newspaper that wrote today that uh, your competition was out there trying to say it's for the rich, it's for the rich, which they, of course, say routinely. It turned out that they weren't telling the truth, and the paper actually called them on it, which was shocking to me. It was shocking. But they were called. They said they're not telling the truth because this is a middle-income tax reduction, and it's a very big one. It will be the biggest tax reduction in the history of our country. President Trump touting his tax plan today. And says the biggest reduction in the history of the country. That is that is significant, isn't it? That is clearly something that we should all pay some close attention to. What will be tested here is a lot of uh, economic theory that conservatives have been pushing for a long time, that tax cuts result in growth and shared prosperity and uh, high employment and all kinds of great stuff, right? Although already right now, as you know, the... Unemployment rate is incredibly low. The tax, I'm sorry, I forget the tax. The um, overall stock market is doing very, very well. <laughs> the tax rate's also very high. The tax receipts are at an all-time high. Boo. That's also there. But here's what here's how the New York Times describes the Trump tax plan. Republican lawmakers unveiled a sweeping rewrite of the tax code on Thursday, outlining a $1.5 trillion plan that will deliver a significant tax cut for corporations and more modest savings for middle-class families, while tilting the United States closer but not entirely toward the kind of tax system long championed by businesses. The House plan, released after weeks of internal debate, conflict, and delay, is far from final and immediately ignited a legislative and lobbying fight as business groups, special interests, and Democrats began tearing into the text ahead of a Republican sprint to get the legislation passed and to President Trump's desk by Christmas. Lawmakers appeared unfazed by the blowback and scheduled the first official markup of the bill for Monday, end quote. Okay, so that's one, that's the Times version of this, right? Which is like, corporations are not people. The tax cut is for corporations. Terrible. Whose streets are streets? Whose streets are streets? Stuff like that, right? A little bit, a little bit of that vibe coming from the New York Times. And then you also have the Nancy Pelosi version. Hi, everybody. It's Nancy Pelosi. 
Nancy Pelosi has her own version of it. This is the shell game, a Ponzi scheme that corporate America will perpetrate on the American people. The Republican bill, written in secret, designed to be raced forward before it's truly understood, ransacks vital uh, benefits for the middle class. Ransacks the middle class. Oh, those terrible things, the middle class. It's just this is horrible. All the things that will be done to the middle class under this tax scheme. We'll see. We will see. Um, this is going to be good for business, to be sure, and it will put a lot of uh, propaganda in the hands of the Democrats that the Republican Party is a corporatist party that holds the interests of the donor class of corporations above individuals. That's what they'll say. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just, let's all be prepared for that, right? The class warfare narrative is going to become a central theme among Democrats going into the midterms here. That's going to be the case. So you'll see a lot of that. You'll see a lot of that. That should be your expectation. But Trump is not holding back as a result of it. Does not care that Democrats are going to say that. He's got to go ahead with his business. And here are some of the specifics of this. We're going to make America globally competitive again. Our corporate tax rate is 60 percent higher than our average competition. We'll slash the corporate rate from 35 percent to no more than 20 percent. That's truly one of the big things in the bill. What that's going to do is create tremendous success for companies and jobs. It's about jobs. For five years, expense, the full cost of new equipment in the year you buy it. Something that personally I've never heard about in terms of when I was a businessman. In fact, that's a great incentive for everybody to want to be business people. So it's going to be good for businesses, to be sure. There will be uh, the the benefit of having more cash on hand for businesses, which hopefully will translate into uh, hiring and all kinds of good stuff for the economy. Uh, Higher wages, elevated GDP, growth, prosperity, yay, everybody wins. That's the plan, literally and figuratively. That's the plan. Um, That's what they're hoping for here. Will it work? Will they get it through? Will they do it in time? I am I am uh, skeptical. You can put me in the skeptical category. Not that it will work so much as that they'll get it done. I find it unlikely that they will get this done before the new year. Um, just because I, I could try to give you a very complicated explanation, rationale for all that, but just because the Republican Congress has so far been so incapable and so inept... Of getting anything done, I will say that on taxes, this is where Republicans, I mean, you know, Paul Ryan gets really excited. He's like, oh, gee, gosh, this is going to be great. Tax cuts. Yay. Uh, so, sure, uh, this is something that Republican congressmen always say they want and I think actually do want. Unlike immigration, where the GOP, the, the elected officials of the GOP are often lying and misleading their own constituents, never mind the general public on what they want for immigration with tax cuts. Yeah, they want tax cuts. And they want corporations to have more cash on hand, which will certainly translate into uh, political donations. Let's not be 
Let's not be naive, my friends, but I think it will also do good things for the economy, right? More money. This is a very basic conservative notion, right? More money in the hands of the individuals who earn it is a better thing than more money for the federal government taking it from those people. And this is, we shall, we shall see how this plays on the political side. But for, uh, in the meantime, I think that uh, this is going to be a win, a win for the administration. I think they will get I, I'm not sure they'll get it done before the end of the year, but I do think they'll get it done relatively soon. And I think the what would they oh they decided the 401k will stay the same. That was a big sticking point. So the 401k is not going to get touched as of right now. Remember, this is just the House version of the bill. The Senate may have their own version, then it's got to go into con, go into conference and figure it out, hammer out the differences if there's a difference in the Senate bill. Um but we'll see. I know, right? Taxes, everybody. Woohoo! Tax time. Um, so we got into our taxes thing for today. Maybe I'll have on. I, I think we were going to have. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll invite on an economist or two, and they can tell you about how this is going to be like the greatest thing since the Reagan tax cuts and all that. Well, maybe that's all true. I hope it's true. Um, but I don't get quite as excited, especially because we haven't. It hasn't been passed yet. I do. I'm just going to put this out there. I kind of wish. Why can't we have a flat tax, you know? Still got a progressive tax system. Still, have, And people say, oh, you could never do that. Well, if you got rid of all deductions, all of them, 20% on all income over 50, I mean, that seems reasonable, or 30 or whatever it would be. 20, I don't know. 20%. They're saying that your taxes are going to be so much easier now. I don't really see how that's the case yet. They're just they're condensing some of the brackets, but you're still paying a lot in taxes. Still paying a lot of money in taxes, everybody. And by the way, we are still very, very far from balancing a budget. But no one wants to talk about that, man. We're just going to like do awesome stuff. And Republicans, yay, all that, all that good stuff. So uh, there's that. So there we have taxes. Yay. Let's talk a bit on the other side of this break about, hmm, I'm, I've got a few things in mind here. You know what? I will make it a surprise that's right. I will surprise you on the other side of this break with what I choose to discuss. So, oh, but in the third hour, I should know, we will get into a discussion with Jocko Willink, a former Navy SEAL commander, uh, best-selling author now, has a huge uh, podcast, a huge podcast following, uh, really compelling and inspirational uh, individual, and uh, we thank him in advance for his service. Um, and then also... We will talk about the sexual counter-revolution and some of the latest. Um, see, it's very tough because every time I want to talk to you about the exaggerated environment right now for sexual harassment, I also feel like we are either there's another story of something terrible that somebody did. Right. So these are these are things that can exist simultaneously. There can be very bad people that have done very bad things under the general uh, general umbrella of sexual misconduct. But there also can be people who didn't do something that's very bad who are getting caught up in the outrage machinery right now of men are, you know, men are pigs and do terrible things and they're, we need to hold them all to account. And you know, if, you ask a, if you ask somebody in the workplace out to coffee, you've committed a terrible crime. Those are things we need to clear up. We need to make sure that there's some clarity added into that discussion. Oh, and you thought I was done talking about taxes. Taxation is theft. <laughs> I like that. That's true, actually. Taxation is legalized theft is stealing. I do not like 
that the government is able to just say, you know, that, that stuff you have, I'm just going to take it from you, or at least as much of it as I say I'm taking from you. I always enjoyed it in the show uh, Parks and Recreation, Parks and Rec, when Ron Swanson has a, uh, a young lady who's visiting in his office, and he uh, takes her sandwich and takes a big bite of it, like a third, and he goes, that is, you know, he explains that that is taxation. The government's like, oh, thank you for your sandwich. I will take a third of it now. Um, that's still going to be the case for a lot of people. I wanted to give you some specifics here because I was just musing and uh, thinking about the tax situation. Here's what we get, courtesy of Fox News. The legislation simplifies how Americans file their taxes. It would be completed, the filing system would be able to be completed on a postcard with just 15 lines for most Americans. Plan also shrinks the number of tax brackets from seven to three or four, with respective rates of twelve percent, twenty-five percent, thirty-five percent, and a category still to be decided. The plan sets a twenty-five percent tax rate starting at ninety thousand dollars for married couples, with a thirty-five percent rate beginning at two hundred and sixty thousand, which means many upper-income families whose top rate is thirty-three percent would face higher taxes. Individuals making 500000 and couples earning $1 million would face the current Clinton-era top rate of 39.6%. So there's, there's still some, you know, it's just some pretty high taxes in there for high earners. And the amount of taxes paid by those who are in the top 10% of earners is, is pretty staggering. The top 20% is basically all of it. Taxes are paid by the top fifth of, the, of those who are earners, right? That, that's who pays taxes overwhelmingly in this country, although we all, I guess, pay in the form of uh, consumption taxes and all the rest of it. I don't know. I, you know, people are very excited. It depends on what publication, right? The Wall Street Journal is like, oh, my gosh, taxation. They're like doing backflips. And people are like, woo, taxes. Other places are a little more like, yeah, all right, the rates, I mean, it'll get a little bit better. It's not going to be amazing, though. It would be so great. It would be so great if we could get down to like a 15 or 20% flat tax rate, but that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I worry, just putting this out there, that we're not going to deal with the fact that we're still spending too much money as a country every year until it's too late for us to avoid a major uh, economic crisis. And that crisis, kind of like the housing crisis, will be blamed on whichever Republican happens to be in office. It was George Bush. It will be, this time around, maybe Donald Trump. That's unfortunate. See, we we may have. I, look, I don't want to be. I'm not trying to be the, the doubter here, but even if we get this tax cut through and it shows a lot of growth and a lot of good things, I am concerned. I am concerned that unless we deal with some of these structural problems within the economy, we will be in a position where the music is going to stop and people aren't going to have a chair and. Pick your cliche. It's just going to fall apart. Um, it's just going to fall apart. Uh, so we have to deal with that. It's not a conversation anybody particularly wants to have now. And I wonder why. And I remember back in 2012 and everyone was like, we cannot keep spending so much money. And I was like, yeah, I'm with you. We cannot spend so much money. And, you know, the debt's now $20 trillion and like no one really seems to care. I really mean that. I don't hear anybody talking about it very much. And so it's hard to be the one guy who sits here in the radio studio, and it's like, you know, this is a problem, right? You know that that there will be a correction of the stock market. There will be a major change in what feels like uh, 
an endless status quo for the economy right now. And it's not going to be a fair discussion about how we got here, right? No, no one's going to say, oh, remember when Obama, well, I shouldn't say no one, but the Democrats are never going to say, oh, yeah, Obama spent way too much money and things got out of control. And, and then the Republicans didn't fix things, which would be a more accurate version of it. No, no. If it happens while Trump is in office, it's all going to be blamed on Trump. So I just think we should probably prepare for the possibility that this whole thing starts to get a little shaky. Um, We should at least be aware of the fact that the drag on the economy that comes from the debt is very real. It's much harder to define and to uh, specify. But I'm I'm just putting it out there. I'm putting it out there. And, And then I could also... If I could, just for a, a moment here, uh, I see that they update things. This is particularly true at, at true at CNN. They update the special counsel investigation as though they're giving us the the pregame stats for the Super Bowl. Right now, it's like Jared Kushner turned over documents to the special counsel. Mm, I don't think anybody really cares, unless you think that this is all gonna be a big deal still, right? They are, they are clinging to this notion that there will be a much bigger uh, reveal from the entire Mueller special counsel thing. And it's just one of, these, one of these very crystal clear instances of, I guess you'd call it media balkanization, or you, know, you have to be preaching to the left-wing choir at this point. Uh, to think that it's a good idea to f- spend a lot of time on stories about the Russia collusion thing, but they're they're still doing it. They are still very much um, focused in on that. So expect, I think next week you can expect there'll be a series of updates about how Papadopoulos was part of a global conspiracy to undermine the election. You know, whatever it is, I, I don't even know what they're going to make up, but I'm sure it'll be. It'll be frightening and and creative at the same time. So that much is for sure. Jocko Willink, coming up in a few minutes here, talk to us about his book, which is on discipline. Discipline is one of the most important things in life. Discipline and endurance is really all you need, in my opinion, for success. If you have discipline and you can endure in whatever you're doing, you'll probably be successful. But they're both very, very hard things. Uh, which I'll be reminding myself later tonight when I'm like, I mean, do I need to have half of a dark chocolate bar before I watch the TV show? The answer is yes. The, the answer is yes. I do need to have half of that bar. So We have Jocko Willink on the line. He is a decorated Navy, Navy SEAL and a best-selling author, including of Extreme Ownership, which has spent two straight years on the Wall Street Journal's business list. He's here to discuss his new book, though, Discipline equals freedom, a field manual. Jocko, great to have you. Thanks for having me on, Buck. Uh, tell us about how discipline equals freedom, sir. Well, it's uh, pretty obvious when you think about it, and it's not too obvious if you don't think about it. Obviously, in our life, we all want freedom. We want as much freedom as we can possibly get, and p- people get lost in the fact they think that the pathway to freedom is through freedom, but that actually doesn't work. In order to get to freedom, you have to have discipline, and that's what the book is about. How do we take steps towards discipline? I mean, how do you get people in the mindset, Jocko? I mean, you worked with the most elite warriors in the world, right? How do you get people who aren't from that kind of a background to start instilling discipline in their day-to-day lives? Well, again, a lot of it just comes from the initial recognition that 
if you want freedom, you've got to have discipline. So the real easy example that I use all the time is if you want to have financial freedom, which everyone wants to have financial freedom, well, then you got to have financial discipline. You've got to have the discipline to work hard. You've got to have the discipline to save your money. You've got to have the discipline to make smart investments. You've got to have the discipline to not spend money on things that you don't actually need. And if you have that kind of financial discipline, well, eventually you'll end up with financial freedom. And that applies to really everything in your life. And tell me about stepping aggressively toward your fears, something else that you talk about in Discipline Equals Freedom. Well, what do most people do with their fears? They avoid them. And when you avoid your fears and you turn your back on them, they don't get better. They actually get worse. So when you're afraid of something, what you should actually do is step to it. And a a good example of that, if you're having a, a problem, let's say you're in the business world and you're having a problem with a client, and a lot of people what they'll do is they'll avoid that phone call. They don't want to tell the client that something has gone wrong with their account. And so instead they just avoid it. And what happens while you avoid making that phone call, the problem just get worse. It doesn't go away. And so that's what I'm saying is if you've got a problem, if you've got a fear, something that you don't want to deal with, the best thing you can do is step towards that fear and that will make you confront it and you'll put it aside and get through it. Tell me about fighting the feeling of not feeling it. Well, this is one of those classic things where people wake up in the morning and they'll say, oh, you know, maybe I'll skip my workout today because I'm just, I'm just really not feeling it. And what I do when I'm not feeling it is I make sure that I feel it. I turn it on. I step it up. I realize that I'm being weak and I just overcompensate and push super hard. And I think that's the best way to get over when you don't feel it is to make sure that you feel it. We're speaking to Jocko Willink, who is a decorated Navy SEAL. He's got a new book out, Discipline Equals Freedom, a a field manual. Uh, Jocko, tell me more about uh, how you feel like regret is worthless, something that you tackle in the book. Well, there is a little tiny bit of value in regret, and I I talk about that as well in there. And and the, the value that you get from regret is you learned something, right? If you made a mistake and you regret that what, what action you took in the past, well, okay, at least you can learn something from that. But once you've figured out what the lesson that you learned is, then it's time to move forward. Because if you're sitting around thinking about regret, now all you're doing is taking away energy from what you should be focused on, which is moving forward and improving your station in life. What If I, if I could just draw upon your extensive SEAL experience for a moment, Jocko, what... What is the, the the primary characteristic of the mindset of someone who's going to get through uh, BUDS training to actually become a SEAL? I mean, if you could identify one thing, what would it be? Or maybe a couple of things. Well, it's, it's real simple. And people ask me this all the time. I'll get young guys that are heading to SEAL training, and they say, what do, what do I need to do to get through the training? It's actually really easy to get through the training. All you have to do is not quit. That's what you have to do. Don't quit. And it's 80, 80, roughly 80% of the people quit. And if you don't quit, then you make it through the training. So if you want to make it through, don't quit. So it is, it is, it is a mental as well as physical endurance test of the, of the highest order. And in terms of uh, learning from mistakes, I mean, you were on the front lines. I know you served in, in Iraq and were in Ramadi when Ramadi was uh, a, a very, very spicy place to be. Um, what, what were some of the things that you learned from your experiences as a commander of Navy SEALs that's applicable to folks who are just trying to better themselves? Well, again, the, the Battle of Ramadi was, yes, a very, very difficult fighting, uh, incredible effort by U.S. Army soldiers and Marines that were fighting there, and we were honored to serve alongside those guys. 
And we certainly learned about teamwork. We certainly learned about leadership. And one of the most important lessons that, that we really confirmed and solidified there was the fact that you have to take ownership of things that are going on. So in a leadership position, you know, that's what the book Extreme Ownership is about. You know, you're in a leadership position. If there's mistakes and there's errors and there's problems that you're having, you have to take ownership of those problems. And if no one on the team is taking ownership of the problems, then the problems are never going to get solved. So that's probably the biggest lesson that I walked away from the Battle of Ramadi with. And, and I like one thing that, that you uh, mentioned here in your book about how you should be afraid of failure, but even more afraid of doing of essentially not being in the game at all. Yeah, absolutely. My uh, people always say, well, I'm, I'm afraid to fail. And I say, well, that's good because I was I'm, I was always afraid to fail. And because I was afraid to fail, that mean that meant I was going to train harder. That mean meant I was going to prepare harder. That meant that I was going to do everything I good, could to mitigate the possibility of failing. And so fear is a good thing, and fear of failure is a good thing. But the biggest fear you should have is actually being so afraid of failing that you're not going to do anything, and you're going to wake up in one month, three months, six months, or six years, and realize that whatever goal it was that you wanted to achieve, you haven't even moved at all because you were afraid to get out of the starting gate. Jocko, you tell us also in this book to uh, to build a routine on stretching. Now, now from the look of it, people would assume that you're a guy who spends a, a lot of time deadlifting a lot of weight. They wouldn't necessarily expect you to be giving a giving advice on a stretching routine, but I, I know that that's a, a great thing for people to do. What made you put that in the book, and, and how would somebody go about getting started with that? Well, you got to, as a physical human being, you've got to maintain some semblance of balance. And so, yeah, you definitely want to be strong and you want to have good cardiovascular, but you've also got to, you've also got to maintain mobility and flexibility. And, and if you do sports like jiu-jitsu and other martial arts, definitely being flexible and mobile is important. But beyond that, just in day-to-day life, being flexible and being mobile is important. So if you've got to maintain that, uh, some kind of stretching so that you maintain that mobility and flexibility throughout your life. Last thing for you, Jocka, before we let you go, we appreciate you making the time today. You say here to use extreme caution with, with all firearms. Um, I, I know that that's, it sort of goes without saying, but I just wanted you to you know, extrapolate on that a little bit. It's, it's an important safety tip that people can't hear enough of. Well, absolutely. I'm you know, a believer, obviously, in, in firearms and the, the complete gift they are to people. If you are going to defend yourself, there's nothing better than having firearms. But also, obviously... If firearms are misused or handled unsafely, they can they can kill people and and cause horrible accidents. So you got to follow the basic the basic firearm safety. Number one being always treat every firearm as if it's loaded, and that's probably the biggest uh, mistake where accidents happen with firearms. I, I remember hearing from somebody from the one of uh, your fellow special operations community members when I was just uh, an analyst and, and trying to learn some of the the basics of of handling more advanced firearms said that one of the problems that you'll come across is that some people who actually are very comfortable with firearms become too comfortable, then they become a little cavalier. And even even someone who's an elite marksman and really knows what they're doing, if they lose respect for the, uh, the firearms they're handling, mistakes can happen. That's what I was told. You're 100% right. And you should always 
treat firearms with utmost respect and always treat them as if they're loaded. You know, never point them at anything you don't mean to destroy. Keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to engage the target. You've got to follow those fundamental rules all the time, and then firearms are safe. Jocko, uh, Jocko Willink, everybody. Discipline equals freedom, a field manual. It is in bookstores now. Jocko, one tip for everybody for tomorrow to do that they might not do otherwise. What is it? Wake up early and work out. Get some. All right, fantastic. Jocko, thank you so much. Everyone check out his book, Discipline Equals Freedom, a field manual. Because you run in the world, and I know that's one of the questions. It's like raising our men. We got to rest. Talking to my mother about that that the other day. It's like the problem in the world today is we we love our, our boys, and we raise our girls, you know? We raise them to be strong, and sometimes we take care not to hurt men. And mm. and I think we we pay for that a little bit, mm. and that's a we thing because we're raising them, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's powerful to have strong men, but what does that strength mean? Mm-hmm. You know, does it mean respect? Does it mean responsibility? Does it mean compassion? Or are we protecting our men too much, so they feel a little entitled and a little, you know, uh, you know, a little self righteous sometimes? Mm-hmm. But that's kind of on us. Too as 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 women and yep. mothers, yeah, you know, as we nurture men and push girls to be perfect. Mm. That was former first lady Michelle Obama, and that was blather, nonsense, piffle, uh, claptrap. It was a, a a waste of of her breath and a waste of everyone's time listening to it, although maybe it, it in some ways illuminated what is now a, a fashionable position on the left, which is to just take a somewhat derogatory, a, a somewhat condescending or undermining view of men, of roughly one half of the Earth's population. It, when I say it that way, I know it sounds so incredibly... Dumb that no one could take that seriously, right? But but you do see it happening. I mean, if you go back and you were to listen to that Michelle Obama clip again, it looks she's somebody who's treated with tremendous uh, deference and, and reverence on the left. What what is she even saying? What do some of these things that she's saying mean? What what does it mean? Uh, she says, for example, that we raise our girls, we love our boys. Who is she referring to with this? And and how is she... I, I'm not even really clear on what the distinction is she's trying to make. This whole notion of men feeling... She says men feel entitled and we're protecting our men. Uh, from what? How? This to me is just... Uh, well, there's a few things here. First of all, you can tell that no one is ever allowed to challenge what Michelle Obama says. She's never in an environment, and look, she's a former first lady. She can do whatever she wants, right? But she does not put herself in an environment where anyone's allowed to say, I'm sorry, what does that mean? What are you trying to say? What is the point of what you are saying? No, she's, and this is not new, right? I've seen interviews with her on The View and on the, you know, the this show and then that show and Michelle Obama's commentary, and she is a public figure and she's clearly a political figure. Always treated with reverence. I actually can tell you this. She 
gives speeches and and is uh, and, and had a, a large staff, which has since been made considerably smaller under this presidency. But she had a large staff as first lady, and she. I've never seen her contradicted once. I've never seen anyone say, you know, I, I don't know if that's a. Uh, I mean, I mean in person, right, or or on air or anything. I've only heard everything she says is perfect and brilliant. Everything that she uh, tells all the rest of us, whether it's about school lunches or you know, y- you name it, it's it's always exactly picture perfect what it is supposed to be, and that's not true. I mean that that whole series of statements she just went through there about how. We uh, we nurture our men and we expect perfect women. This is like some strange misplaced feminism mixed with a I don't know what like a like, you know, girl power. It's but there is this wave in the country right now because of some of the admittedly horrific revelations about the conduct of certain men who are powerful and men on, on yes, there's men on both sides of the political aisle who abuse their position. And, and there's a, such a huge, there's such a, a, an enormous scope of what we talk about when we discuss the bad behavior of men in powerful positions. Right. I mean, you, we should not be having a discussion and, and I'll be talking more about this in a few minutes, but uh, we should not be having a discussion about, you know, Harvey Weinstein alleged serial uh, rapist, in, in anything near the same paragraph or, or conversation as, you know, did, did Jeremy Piven, who's an actor, who's now his name's gotten dragged in this. Did, did he I don't know. I don't know what he's accused of, but, you know, something. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not sexual assault. My understanding and, and this could change. My understanding is that Jeremy Piven was accused of being, uh, you know, propositioning a woman that he worked with. Those are not the same things. Right. Right. Uh, attacking somebody and committing a criminal act is not the same thing in any stretch of the universe as saying, hey, you know, want to come back to my hotel room and someone says no and you leave them alone. Those are not the same. But there is this moment, there is an anti-male moment right now in this country that the media is seizing on, and it it is uh, it is troubling. And I think that Michelle Obama was uh, in some weird way playing into that. But then again, I'm I'm also willing to note that I don't know what Michelle Obama thinks that she's saying. I mean, th- that's not helpful. It's also, just, it's such a generalization as to be utterly worthless. Women in this, I, I mean, I assume she's talking about only in America, right? Women in this country are nurturing men and expecting women to be perfect. Now, I've look, I don't have kids. I, I understand. Right. There's a whole series of of, uh, of of attacks that I would open myself up to here by questioning the first lady on this. But I'm just saying her whole line of her whole line of, of, of not argument, but line of reasoning was just flimsy. I mean, I don't even I don't even I'm unable to come to a real conclusion about what she thinks she's saying. Which is troubling because she has a lot of uh, is treated, like I said, treated with reverence and has a lot of credibility in the media still. And, you know, any any criticism of the former first lady is uh, is to be met with. 
fierce howls of indignation and outrage from the media still. So I, I, I'm not criticizing the first lady as a you know as a matter of whether I like her or not or anything else. I just I don't know why she's giving a speech and saying that men are essentially men are coddled and entitled and women are expected to be perfect. To me, that's just you know what it is. It's just gender pandering, gender pandering. And this happens. If you think about it, you know, honestly, it it does go on, especially among the left. You know, what's another example of gender pandering. The pay gap, which has been studied and studied. It is not true. But nonetheless, people say, what is it, 77 cents on the dollar? I don't even remember what the, you know, 78 cents on the dollar. It's not true, but people say it because it panders to one gender. And also the moment that you point to the social science and and show that women in general, in their career paths, tend to make different decisions even when they've had the same academic training as their male counterparts. That's considered to be not evidence of women maybe are just in the aggregate different than men. That's evidence of, of bias and oppression and patriarchy. So, which none of that is true. as Because I actually read social science for fun on the weekends. One of the things I like to try to bring, to, uh, bring into the mix here on the show Women, for example, dominate in the uh, veterinary uh, veterinary profession. They are more veterinarians or women than men by a large margin, and they are well paid and they are obviously highly educated, go to med school. But there are far fewer women who are mechanical engineers. And and they'll tell you as part of gender pandering. And this is a leftist thing, right, because the left thinks of people in, in group identity, but then also the moment you actually look at the numbers about different groups, they scream that that's just that's making things even worse, right? That's intersectionality run amok. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that this was an instance of Michelle Obama doing some gender pandering because right now there's a real anti-male feeling out there. And I want to talk more about that because it's also going to influence the way men and women interact, I think, in profound ways and in very negative ways. The sexual counter-revolution is upon us, my friends. I have been warning about this on the show for some time, and I see that others out there in the world of commentary, uh, they are also recognizing the dangers of this current frenzied moment in the witch hunt for any form of, never mind, unwanted sexual contact, but any form of unwanted sexual commentary or even what would be understood in a kinder, gentler, easier period in our history as a guy making the first move. No one talks about it in those terms, but when you look at some of the recent allegations, it is quite clear that there is a hysteria that is not just happening, but that is also being harnessed by the left. They view this as a very useful political weapon. Now, just as when there are other subjects that we tackle here in the Freedom Hut, I 
feel the obligation to preface what we are and what we are not talking about. I'm not talking about Harvey Weinstein here. He's a monster. I'm not talking about some of the other cases out there of individuals who, never mind professional sanctions for their behavior, uh, seem to, based on the reports, have violated incredibly serious criminal laws. They are criminals. And statute of limitations or not, they should be reviled for their actions if they are, in fact, guilty of them. Sometimes they admit to it. In the case of Weinstein, he's admitted a lot of this conduct. Uh, and some of the others, it seems abundantly clear, were way out of line with what they were doing. Halpern and some of these other individuals who have lost jobs and been in the midst of this melee over sexual harassment. But if you look at some of what else is coming out now, we have a state of play here whereby if you are even accused of any form of, not like I said, not criminal misconduct, but just somewhat unseemly, maybe a little bit over-aggressive sexual conduct of any kind, comments we're talking about here, you know, touching someone on the waist or maybe the, or the knee. You know, you had this actress from the show The Crown on Netflix, and there's a photo of Adam Sandler, and he's in a very crowded place and knows he's on camera, and he has his hand on her knee in a gesture that I'm sure he thought was the equivalent of someone putting their arm around somebody for a photo. At some point, we reach the outer limits of what any rational person could, could accept as a prohibition on behavior, and, and I think we are pretty much there already with some of this stuff that's happening and some of the outrage. I mentioned George H.W. Bush, now Adam Sandler, and even more than just the hyper-sensitivity about any sexual discussions or, you know, there is an obvious moment in time here where if you're just accused of even a relatively minor transgression that could fall under the incredibly broad category of sexual harassment, you're done. They, they want to push you out of the public square. And there is, there is a feeling out there that I know others share, and I'll talk to you about an article that I really thought was excellent on this subject in a second. Oh, there's a feeling out there that this anti-sexual harassment movement is also infiltrated with a whole bunch of little sexual harassment Robespierre's, uh, little revolutionaries or counter-revolutionaries who have a tyrannical streak and are looking to do a whole lot more than just get the basic rights of the peasantry and uh, take the royals down a peg or two, right? We all know what happened with the French Revolution. Things got really bad. Uh, they are hunting for examples to make of people right now, including those individuals who are guilty of, if anything, conduct that is perhaps a little bit rude, but we're talking about the realm of manners here. We're not talking about someone who should be uh, completely ostracized from public life, lose their livelihood, lose their reputation. This is insane. And as I have been warning you, it is already being politicized. The targets that they are picking will increasingly be determined 
now that they have the outrage meter at the absolute height, uh, the targets that they pick for the much lesser sexual harassments that I'm talking about now, uh, they'll be somehow out of favor with Hollywood. Um, but there's this piece in The Spectator, or out of favor with the left, I should say. There's this piece in The Spectator, the consequence of this new sexual counter-revolution, No Sex at All, by Douglas Murray. His subheading is, Feminism isn't producing guides for helping men, it is producing manifestos for torturing them. It's absolutely true. And here is just some of this piece, which I have to tell you, I think is excellent. Quote, we are in the middle of a profound shift in our attitude towards sex, a sexual counter-revolution, if you will. And whereas the 1960s saw a freeing up of attitude towards sex, pushing at boundaries, this counter-swing is turning sexual freedom into sexual fear and nearly all sexual opportunities into a legalistic minefield. The, ruler, the rules are being redrawn with little idea of where the boundaries of this new sexual utopia will lie and less idea still of whether any sex will be allowed in the end. It is partly whipped along by the fact that each episode in the revolution is so grimly fascinating and each has its own internal propulsions. For instance, nobody outside Hollywood could regret the disgrace of an, uh, disgrace of an overpraised toad who spent far too long surrounded by overly attractive people. After Harvey Weinstein's downfall, who could not enjoy the sweeping, uh, the sweeping of Tinseltown for DNA evidence or mere hearsay exposing that whole rotten, preachy liberal facade? Um, this week, the urge to purge the pervs has turned on the House of Parliament. Right, end quote there. I mean, he's, he goes into more detail and he gets into some British stuff that we won't be familiar with here on this show in terms of the specific stories. But the overall point in the UK is the same here in the U.S. And as he says, and this article has a picture of Adam Sandler with his hand on the knee of this actress uh, who uh, was, uh, what's her name, Claire Foy. And she said that she wasn't angry about this, but the liberal feminazi left wants to be outraged for her. So she's not even allowed to determine. I should note, this is not entirely new in the sense that if you follow the campus rape culture frenzy, you would know that there was a, a well-known case, or at least it's been publicized in the last six months or so, of a, of a woman who, a young woman, college woman, who was, uh, she said, horsing around with her boyfriend in public, and someone filed a complaint that he was abusing her, and she never said that there was anything wrong. He never thought there was anything wrong. Both of them said that everything is fine. They never changed their stories. And the school punished him anyway because a third party said it looked like he was being a little rough with her. I mean, you know, look, if he had, if he had punched her in the face or something, we would all know, right? But apparently they were, uh, you know, wrestling a little bit or something and roughhousing and, and someone else saw it and brought in a complaint. But the point is that even if the woman says that it's okay, the movement may not say it's okay. The counter-revolution, the sexual counter-revolution may decide for her. And that's what this piece really goes into. And this is what I've been saying now. I, I could see this coming, and, and it is already happening. Uh, let me give you a little more of what this author, uh, Douglas Murray, writes in The Spectator. Quote, If we are to enter this strange new puritanical era, 
then at least let us not enter it silently. Allow it to be admitted that many women as well as men are happy to use their looks and wiles when these work to their advantage. It is not always victim blaming, but a mere statement of fact that attractive people attract unusual amounts of attention and that not all find this a disadvantage. Actors and models of both sexes, as much as parliamentary assistants, know this and so does everybody else. And unless we decide that only a superclass of beautiful people are allowed to seek sex, we should accept that people in the lower to middling ranges of attractiveness should be allowed the odd punt too. End quote. What he's saying is under this current anti-sexual harassment regime that we are now in the midst of, any man who tries to make a pass, meaning maybe tries to kiss or tries to grab the, you know, grab, hold the hand of, uh, you know, makes a move. This is what we used to call making a move. If you do that and the woman is not interested and you immediately say, well, um, you know, apologies, I, I, I must have misread the situation, you might lose your job now. If you work in the same company, and now I understand there's the, there's the boss, employee, subordinate, inferior, or, you know, the subordinate versus superior relationship, but I'm not talking about that. Just in general, you know, some of these allegations are about actors working with other actors and yeah, there are grotesque allegations of what would have been or what was uh, criminal misconduct. But some of the other ones are a hand on a knee. Well, if a hand on a knee can get you in trouble, what about, you know, I thought you liked me and so I wanted to give you a kiss goodnight. If the lady doesn't want to kiss, every guy listening already knows. You go, whoops, all right, you know, you, you, you back off and that's that. But are, are we... Otherwise, we're in a world where anyone who dates anyone in their industry or really, for that matter, in any industry and tries to lean in for a kiss is a is a, a sexual deviant, a harasser, a, a person who is part of the patriarchy and oppressing women. I mean, this is complete nonsense. And we are hurtling toward this reality right now. If we're not already there. Uh, this is a complete hysteria right now when it comes to the lighter the much lesser and lighter side of some of the conduct that we're talking about here things like a comment that was made years ago that was sexist you know if a man says to a woman that he works with that is not his employee you know i, I find you really beautiful i think we should go out on a date he's a sexist now that's harassment and i'll say that when i was in government they were pretty clear about this they said look you're, you're allowed you're allowed to ask once and then after that, you got to back off. This is really a question of manners and respect and decency. People are going to make mistakes, but they'll make mistakes that are in good faith. The guy is going to lean in for a kiss sometimes and get denied. He's going to ask the lady out for drinks, and she's going to say no. That doesn't make him a bad person, and it certainly doesn't make him a harasser or a, a pervert or a criminal. Nor is it a circumstance that should result in lawsuits and loss of job. But if we don't start to draw these lines now, or rather, if we don't refuse to allow the progressive feminist left to, in fascistic terms, create these new guidelines, these new rules, I should say, for us, then we are going to be living in a society very quickly where any male-female conduct interaction of any, of any kind could be suspect. 
And I will just leave you with this. The definition of a true tyranny is not the strict and rigid across the board enforcement of rules. A real tyranny is the capricious and favoritism-based application of rules, as in the rules apply to some and not to others. That's a true, true tyranny, and that's what we will have in relations between the sexes, unless we all just agree to be adults, have some manners, and show some respect. All right, to close out the Freedom Hunt today, I feel like uh, why not get into the latest with Team Buck Speaks, which is always a a fun segment of the show, at least for me. Uh, So here we go. Uh, We have Sterling writing with the following. Buck, I've been with you a long time, and I love the show, and I'm grateful for the thoughtful perspective. You're among the best. One thing you regularly say when analyzing new data is, what does that mean? That phrase has changed the way I look at the world. You've made it so clear how important the language we and others truly use in controlling the narrative. Uh, That said, I work for an unnamed airline and disagree with your proclamation that airline employees just don't care. I know this is an old topic, but I can't shake off the topic. We airline employees have the sometimes difficult task of enforcing company policy as well as federal regulations. Some relevant and important, others not so much. A libertarian in an industry so heavily regulated makes my head hurt. Uh, in regards to, okay, he goes on to some length. In regards to comfort, I blame uh, and credit Southwest Airlines. Their goal was and continues to be making flying affordable to more people. Uh, the comfort you want is available in first class, but I'm not willing or able to pay for that comfort. All right. So, okay. Uh, and he just writes, keep up the good work in Shields High. Sterling, thank you. I'm sorry that I had to, I didn't realize how long the uh, the note was until I started to get into it a bit. I don't remember saying that airline employees don't care uh, as a blanket statement. I may have, I don't, but I don't remember saying that. I can tell you that I've certainly come across plenty of airline employees who do not seem to care. More than that, it just feels like airlines are the only industry that never really seem it never really seems to get any better. Uh, it doesn't seem like things improve. It just feels like things get uh, more annoying over time. But that's, I'm sure, just perception. Um, so there you have it. Uh, we have Caroline writing in with, and by the way, anytime you think I'm wrong, I, I like to get called out by. The team. I'm not expecting everyone to agree with stuff all the time. I, I just can't remember the specifics of whether I ever said anything about airline employees. I, I pick on different industries, but and, and airline employees would be, would be pretty high on the list. I will say that I've probably gotten uh, as a percentage of of industries more nice commentary from TSA agents on my radio show and TV work than almost any other industry. <laughs> so for whatever reason, I'm always like, thanks TSA. Guy or gal, maybe you haven't heard what I say about the TSA, but that's cool. I know TSA is doing an important job keeping the planes safe in the sky. So there's that. All right. Carolyn writes in, hey, Buck, love the piece on Martin Luther. And yes, he was a really funny guy. My favorite quote of his when he was speaking of the seemingly miraculous ability of the church to drain money from the rest of Europe. He said German money in complete violation of nature flies over the Alps. Well, I must tell you that I am unfamiliar with that quote, but thank you for bringing it to my attention. A different perspective here from Barbara on Martin Luther. Buck, my head exploded when I heard the discussion of Martin Luther. 
Are we talking about the same Martin Luther, a simple monk? What? He has been described as, quote, a man of will ruled by his affections and appetites. This is not a simple, humble monk. He was one of the men who fractured the body of Christ, which was the worst disaster of the last 2,000 years. Wow. Uh, Matter of fact, Metaxas has drunk the Kool-Aid and does not see the dark side of man's obsession with himself. Humanism, relativism, which uh, Maritain, who is someone who I'm on. She writes a Maritain above here. Jacques Maritain explains so well. Uh, yeah. Oh, she, she also writes some other stuff about Metaxas here, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, well, we had the author on and he shared his, I, I can't pretend to be a, a, an expert at all on Martin Luther. So, you know, I, I let, let Eric, Eric is a best-selling author. He's written a book on Martin Luther. And I would advise you, Barbara, if you, or rather I would recommend that you, uh, take up this dispute directly with him because <laughs> I don't really have a dog in the fight. Uh, but nonetheless, I appreciate your message and your your thoughtful and spirited commentary on on our guest appearance from Eric Metaxas. Okay, with that, we are going to close up shop here in the Freedom Hut for the day. Please do download the podcast. Uh, go to iTunes and Buck Sexton with America Now is what you would click on there. Until tomorrow, when we get rocking with a Freestyle Friday, my friends, no matter what comes your way, shields high.